Grace, Geltman, and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 75. My name is John Grace, producer here at the show, and I'd like to introduce my co-host, Whitewater legend and owner of Immersion Research, John Weld, and North Fork champion and policy director for the Outdoor Alliance, Lewis Geltman. We were going to come back at Christmas, fellas, but a lot of recent events have brought us back to the microphone. So mm. we got a launch. We, of, we got the official launch of a new kayak company. We've got some amazing feats. Now, I just want to paint a picture for you guys before we get. Lewis, you've got some stuff to talk about. We've got a couple emails we want to mix in here. But imagine hiking for 16 miles with all your kayak gear and all the stuff you need over a 12,000 foot tall pass from there you're surrounded by at least a half a dozen 14,000 foot mountains Mount Still North Palisades Starlight Thunderbolt some of the highest mountains in the continental US then you drop down make your way to a river over the course of 40 miles you drop some 7,000 feet through, in my opinion, the most diverse and challenging series of gorges anywhere. And then you do that in 15 hours and some change. And then you do it by yourself. So that just happened on the Middle Fork of the Kings River. So we have uh, we have Ben Luck on the show. Um, who just had an I'm, amazing I'm trip out there. So excited to have Benny on. I mean, I feel like we've been needing to have some representation from team beer on here for a long time. And this is, yeah, this is really the exciting news that brought us back to the podcast here. I would beg to differ. I well, would say your personal well, life would be well, one <laughs> apex kayaks would be number two. Uh, you're just <laughs> embarrassing yourself. Indeed. <laughs> Uh, anyway, super excited about this. We got uh, we got Ben. We got we got to get through some stuff here before we get to Ben. So, uh, Lewis, let's get right into it. Policy update. Yeah. Um. I don't know where did we leave off last week. I mean, I guess great. To me, it's like yeah, it's still circling around America's Great Outdoors Act. Um. Or sorry, the Great American Outdoors Act, which my buddy Seth has been referred to as the make the outdoors great again bill um but it sounds like like we're on track for a house vote the week of july 20th and there are i mean we should be in good shape but this is just such a once in a generation opportunity that we just like have to take every precaution not to let this thing go sideways and so if folks have not done so yet please hit up outdoorlines.org and write your house wrap in support of the great american outdoors act permanent dedicated funding for the land and water conservation fund something like i think it's 1.9 billion dollars a year for um, public lands maintenance backlog uh, just like huge, huge deal, huge rare opportunity, and we got to close on this. So please let help make this happen. Huge opportunity here. So this isn't going to happen in front of Mount Mount Rushmore on July fourth. 
It is not going to happen in front of Mount Rushmore on July 4th. Oh, so looking forward to that. <laughs> now, this I... is huge. This is huge. So something to just sum up LWCF real quick. Money comes from offshore oil drilling. It's not tax revenue. It comes from the sale of natural resources. It goes into everything from parks to, uh, I mean, national parks, national forests, access points, public parks, even in cities. It is the most no-brainer simplest best coolest thing for anybody who yeah. likes to go outside and to your point just like quickly i feel like we've gotten i got a couple of emails from people being like oh is this going to incentivize a bunch of new oil and gas drilling and it's not you know like I, we're not you know pushing for more oil and gas drilling this is just a portion of the existing revenue streams from wells that are already producing you know god willing However, you know, five or 10 or 20 years down the road, we're having, you know, people are like, oh, you know, like, what, what are you going to do when we stop drilling for oil? You know, it's like, we'll have that conversation when we get there. And like, we're all in favor of that, you know, like someday, hopefully fossil fuel energy extraction is not the source of revenue for funding public lands. But right now that money is coming in and it's appropriate that it's earmarked to, you know, pay back the environment to some degree for the damage that we're doing here. So, I mean, it's not, I understand why people have some, um, I don't know, mixed feelings about that, but you know, the money's coming in, the money has been coming in for decades and it's time that it's spent for the purposes that it's, you know, meant to go to. It would be so amazing if this happens. Yeah. I mean, seriously, like there are people who've been working on this for like their entire careers and, you know, just like, let's get this thing done. Oh, that would be so amazing. Has Outdoor Alliance ever considered doing like rallies, you know, like political rally type things, get a bunch yeah. of famous people up, get them all worked up in a tizzy? Yeah, you know, like sort of it's like i feel like part of it is it's like it's just not really our style like it's not like our community style or personally the style of any of the staff of OA or member organizations but i think you know like montana had some public lands rallies like in the state capital like when uh when state takeover of public lands was really in the news and you know the hunting and angling community really like whipped up a bunch of people showing up in their you know hunting gear to say hands off their public lands and uh, I mean, it was kind of cool that people were, were showing up in force for that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I went to that rally at, uh, at OR one right. year. I can't remember who organized that, but it was like a big march from OR down to uh, state capitol in Salt Lake in protest of the state of Utah's terrible public lands policies, you know, right before OR ultimately left Salt Lake. Didn't your boss uh, speak at that? That sounds like something he would have done. I can't recall that to be honest. Yeah, I think he did. Gosh. So, yeah, thanks. We have been involved. The old outdoor retailer kind of show. It's kind of a ready-made rally, though, when you have like 10,000 people just standing around at happy hour looking for something <laughs> to do. Right. <laughs> I still think it's cool, though. It was cool. Good on you guys for going out there. No, go to Outdoor Alliance. Just pop off an email. It just takes no time. Just say make this happen it's important to me you'll get my vote or just whatever you want to say just just pop it off so people know that you're you're in support oh man where do we go from here um let's we're gonna stick with you for a second here lewis if that's all right mm -hmm. um we didn't do any listener mail last show um and we still somehow rambled for two and a half hours 
but uh, let's get caught back up. Josh is asking about e-bikes on BLM land. He says, hey, gang, been a faithful listener to the podcast since the beginning. Thanks for the time you put in. I know you've addressed this issue before, but I'd love to hear some basic, some classic hammer factor banter on some of the most recent happenings with BLM regarding e-bike access in the backcountry. A buddy of mine shared a great article, and I'm passing it on to you guys for reference. Um, so basically, this article from Backcountry Talk, um, BackcountryHunters.org talks about e-bikes in the backcountry. Did you guys have a look at this article, and what's your take on it? I did not have a look at the article, but we did just submit comments to BLM on their e-bike access rulemaking a few weeks ago. Um, for sort of unknown reasons, the desire to open things up to e-bikes has been something of importance to David Bernhardt. And we heard, I don't know, maybe six months or longer ago that, that the proposed position of B of, you know, DOI in general and BLM was going to be that they were going to propose to just treat e-bikes as bicycles in all circumstances. And that was going to be that. And everywhere that's open to bikes was going to be opened up to e-bikes, which would be a disaster on a lot of levels. Um, I mean, the obvious problem is, is that, I mean, looking forward 10 years, how how many gas powered motorcycles are going to be period? They're all going to be electric. I mean, there'll be no lines whatsoever between bicycles and motorcycles. None. Yeah. So, I mean, that was a concern. I mean, I think the concern about just blurring the distinction between human powered use and non and, and motorized use was a concern. And then also, you know, I mean, certainly there are a million conservation organizations that are just like, like, you know, approaching this in the way that you would expect them to. Right. Which is like, this is a desecration of human powered you know, spaces or, or like we don't want motorized use in the backcountry or whatever, which is like understandable. But the thing that I think nobody else besides us and like Imba was really thinking about is that is, you know, bike access, because if every time you, you know, a land manager allows a bike, that means they have to allow e-bikes also. It's just going to make it really, really, really hard to fight for bike access, right? It's like if every time a bike is allowed to the party, their rowdy friend e-bike is allowed to, there are going to be a lot of, you know, equestrians and hikers and conservationists who are just like, like, we don't want any bikes at all. Like, keep them all out. Like, if we have to allow e-bikes too, like, no bikes. And so, you know, this, like, rumor, which we had heard from people very high up at DOI, um, was extremely alarming um the rule that they ultimately came out with is not great but is significantly better than that and what it does is it basically defines there's three categories of e-bikes as regulated by the uh the i can't remember what it's called the consumer protection organization or whatever it's called but they're all 750 watt e-bikes class one two and three class one is assist governed at 20 miles an hour class two is throttled governed at 20 miles an hour and class three is governed at 28 miles an hour and so they said you know these three classes of 
750 watt and under e-bikes are going to be, you know, land managers should generally allow them where bikes are allowed on BLM land, but they have to go through a site-specific determination to do that. Like there has to be NEPA, there has to be public engagement, which is all good. And who's going to monitor this? I mean, realistically, I mean. Well, I mean, monitor in the sense, I mean, they're going to have to go through, you know, police it on the ground in terms of like, that's that's a good question. I mean, that was one of the questions we raised in the comments is, you know, for example, they said that you could use a class two e-bike, the throttled ones, as long as you are not using the the assist as the sole means of powering the bike. Like you had to be pedaling at the same time that you were using the assist, which is entirely unenforceable, right? And so we we're like, look, like you can't, this can't be the rule. And if your goal is to increase accessibility of public lands for, you know, people who have physical limitations or whatever, you know, you can achieve that by allowing class one e-bikes, you know, subject to these place specific determinations and public process. But there's no rationale for expanding that to include class two and three e-bikes because you're just going to drum up, you know, that much more user conflict, that much more, you know, resource management problems. So we advocated for them to scale this thing back significantly and make sure that, you know, like, honestly, what we'd like is for them to reverse that presumption rather than saying generally e-bikes should be allowed where bikes are allowed to say, you know, generally e-bikes should be restricted to motorized trails. But if you go through a site-specific determination with public input and environmental analysis and find that you want to, you know, you can open up a few trails that are right now non-motorized to e-bikes, you know, that can be, that can make sense. So. Tricky. I don't know. I just, I did, I mean, I did, this wasn't an issue in West Virginia because people don't really leave their trailers all that much, but out here, I, I mean, I can't imagine another doubling the number of mountain bikers using the, these trails around here anywhere. I mean, you, you can drive like two hours in the middle of nowhere around here and there's 15 cars parked at the trailhead with bike racks. I don't know. I don't even go to Post Canyon anymore. It's like, it's too much over there. And like Post Canyon is honestly like a pretty appropriate place for e-bikes, all things considered. It's yeah. like, you know, a bunch of trails built with a paver in the middle of a clear cut. Yeah. So... So I don't know. I mean, basically the bottom line is like what BLM is doing could be significantly worse. It's not great. And, you know, hopefully they take feedback on this seriously and, you know, make some changes. But, you know, it is Donald Trump's Department of the Interior. So let's not hold our breath, I guess. How about this land issue, this land uh, access question? I thought this was a good one. Yeah, this one, Dan comes at us, a Lewis question for the next episode, please. Is he still around? Is he still around? Question mark, question mark. (laughs) In general, is it better for a landowner (laughs) to charge for access to a river put in across their private land and make people sign a waiver or to leave it free and post signage with some rules about access and notice of what you are on your own for safety? Um, this is in Wyoming. If the state law is what makes a difference, I figure a lawyer could charge me a couple hundred bucks to answer and maybe he can for free out of the goodness of his heart and maintaining access to the Hoback river, a class three gift to aspiring boaters in Jackson hole, loving the hop seat episodes. This is an interesting one. I have a little insight on this one as well. Um, yeah, I mean, so I guess the first thing I would say is, I mean, I can talk about this issue generally if Dan wants specific advice about the specific situation. I'm 
shoot me an email and we can we can chat about it but generally speaking like i don't know what the law is in wyoming in washington for example there are um like recreational liability protections for land landowners who open up their land to recreational access without charging anything so in washington you know we have like access to the trust for example is through uh timber company land, like SDS land. And, you know, because the timber companies are not on the hook, if, you know, a kayaker drowns or a mountain biker, you know, breaks his leg, we get, you know, pretty good access because the timber companies can, you know, open up those places without fear of liability. In general, if somebody starts charging for access, then there are, you know, significantly more liability implications there. And I don't know if a waiver would really cover all your bases on that. So, I I mean, I guess I don't know exactly what he means by better, but in Washington, at least, I would strongly suspect that from a landowner's perspective, they would be more insulated from liability by just allowing access for free. But it would depend on the state law in Wyoming, which I don't know off the top of my head. So similar it's not river access but uh, we own a piece of property down by the green it's 20 acres and we started to put some mountain bike trails in there and they butt up to an existing 15 mile trail system that's out there and i noticed our trails a lot of people started riding them which really wasn't a big deal in my eyes but i contacted our lawyer about it and kind of the general rule is yes North Carolina has the same kind of rules that you're talking about Lewis as far as they're you're really not liable but there are some cases that if you actually build something and people come on to your private property without knowing it then you can have some liability so like let's say you built a pond on your property and some people were hunting and somebody fell in and drowned or something like that you built that pond so you have some sort of liability to it the way to fix that is to post it or to put purple a purple stripe that marks private property between three and five feet up and it's got to be at least 10 inches long so if you mark it as private and if you have a piece of play, you know, if you own land and the river runs through it and you make zero improvements to that land and people just access it through there, I don't think there's any liability, but I'm not a lawyer. So. And it, it does all depend on state law. So, yeah. you know, I, I think honestly it would probably be, I, I got to think for what kind of thing that Dan's talking about that some lawyer would give him some advice on that in Jackson for free. But um, I don't know, shoot me a line and we can, we can chat about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, super interesting. Um, all right. Well, let's get into our guest for this week. I do not have the Skype handle, Lewis. So can you make the magic happen on this front? Maybe.
Cyber PC 181. Is that him? No, it's like live colon CID dot nine ninety three AC eight oh seven. I don't know how to add somebody. I'm texting. Oh, God, boomers, just too much. <laughs> Did it work? I, I just it didn't work for me, but I just texted you his handle in the or in the chat. Sorry. I think this is gonna work. Well, we're calling. Live CID F one two seven nine five three BBB zero D seven zero. Give see. up Benny's Skype handle we'll, like that. We'll see if this has actually been selected. Benny oh, Lush. there he is. <laughs> That's quite a Skype handle. Yeah, it's uh, auto generated, and I couldn't, uh, I couldn't fix it for some reason. <laughs> oh, it's all good. We we made it work. So welcome to the Hammer Factor, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing really well. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So. You recently got done with some paddling. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. I gave a little teaser to what was going on there a little earlier. But before we introduce, do that, let's introduce yourself. What's your paddle length and feather? <laughs> it's got to be like 210, 90. 210, 210, 210 105. Yeah. 230 degree, mostly. Um, but I have a 205-45 uh, sport, but... I don't use it very much because I don't like hitting rocks with it. <laughs> Sick. So, Ben, let's start with a little bit. Like, where did you grow up? Introduce yourself to to, to, to our listeners who have no idea who you are. All right. Uh, I spent most of my time growing up um, in Idaho and up in Alaska. So I was born in Alaska, lived there when I was a kid, and then started spending my winters in Idaho and summers up in Alaska. Um, and lived in Haley, Idaho, which is like a couple hours from Banks and learned to paddle around there when I was 12 or 13 years old. Um, and then when I was like 19 or 20, moved down to Durango, uh, Colorado for college and met a lot of my paddling partners there and have kind of lived around Colorado ever since. Where are you at right now? I'm at my house in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Okay. So when did you get like officially bit by the whitewater bug? Was it when you were a little kid or was it later or how did that unfold? I think it was um, like my parents weren't paddlers or anything. We spent a lot of time like backpacking and time outside fishing on rivers and stuff, but I don't really remember exactly how I got interested in the sport, but like when I was like 11 or 12, I think it somehow got into my consciousness that you could go whitewater kayaking and it seemed like a cool thing to try. So I talked my family into signing us all up for a roll class. So we all took a roll class together and uh, I was definitely not a natural. Like my mom and my sister got their roll before I did. <laughs> And like sometime pretty soon after that, um, I went to a, a slideshow and like movie um, movie show that Rob Lester was doing about one of their trips up to the Stikine, like around 2000. It's like right after they went up there. And I like kind of just learned how to roll and been paddling a few times and then saw that movie and was like, that is my shit. I'm going to learn how to do that. <laughs> so that's kind of 
like that summer I started paddling more and one of my friends' dads is a really good kayaker, uh, Bozo Cardozo. And he started taking us out a lot and I was definitely, um, once I got my role and started paddling, I was bit pretty much right away. I was probably 12 or 13. Sick. What do you do there in Glenwood now? Um, I'm an engineer by training. I'm actually starting a new job tomorrow with the uh, electric utility in town. Cool. Are you going to yeah. talk to your coworkers about running the Middle Kings in 15 hours? <laughs> uh, I, one of my interviews, I told them that I was a whitewater kayaker, and they said, that's awesome. There's a lot of rafters at the company. so mm-hmm. <laughs> You have a lot in common, I'm sure. Yeah. Things to talk about. Uh, my sister still asks me if I'm rafting. Yeah. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. I did. I went rafting this weekend. Oh, man. So. And so, so, so then you moved to Durango and you, you bet the Klimas and Matt Wilson. And tell us about the genesis of Team Beer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I was 19 or 20, moved to Durango, and started paddling with Nate and Matt Klima. Um, and those guys, you know, meeting them definitely changed the course of my life. Like, <laughs> I thought I was a kayaker because I came, like, from Idaho and had run the North Fork and stuff when I was in high school. But I showed up in Durango, and these guys were so much more dialed and so much harder than I was. Uh, <laughs> like, they're both were Nordic ski racers in high school and Matt was like on the U S Nordic development team after high school. So they're both like freakishly strong, um, and had been paddling all the shit around Durango since they were like, I think Nate started running Vicedo and he was 11 in an Evo (laughs) on a whole another level. But, uh, we, I don't know. They, they just like seemed like my people right away. Like we just totally clicked on and off the river, like had the same motivations and the same, uh, same goals for the future. And, um, just got to be really good friends and worked really well on the river and off the river together. Um, and we paddled we, one, I think the second year I was there, we started paddling a bunch with Matt Wilson who lived in Telluride at the time. And so we had a really productive spring and kind of pushed some of the high water limits on a few of our local runs and sometime that spring we were like driving back from paddling and matt asked us if we wanted to go to peru that fall and nate and i were like both in college at the time and uh, we like mumbled something and he dropped us off back at nate's place and we like stared at each other uh in disbelief one of our kayaking heroes had just invited us on a <laughs> international trip so we all um Ended up going to Peru that fall to try to do the Wyaga, which was had been attempted a couple times once by the ill-fated Vacation to Hell, mm-hmm. like <laughs> Casey and some other um, South American gurus. And yeah, so we went down there that fall and just had a really good trip. Um, did the Wyaga and like, most of the other classics um, down there. And yeah, I just realized we had a lot of potential as a team to, um, to run hard rivers. What do you mean? What do you mean by that? By, by what? By having a good team. What do you, what, what do you think makes a good team? What did you feel like? I don't know. Good question. Um, I think 
I don't know. We're all pretty much just on the same page about the style that we wanted to run rivers in, which was kind of light and fast, um, focusing on downstream movement, not really focusing on collecting media or anything. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like just on that trip, we, we just got way more done than I, we thought we were going to in the six weeks we were down there. And, um, I don't know, everybody is just like super selfless and, um, looking out for each other all the time. Um, uh, everybody kind of brings their own, um, their own strengths. So I don't know. Reason I ask is crew dynamics are so important, especially when yeah. you're really putting yourself out there and it's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, for sure. And I feel like uh, I've been so lucky with the people I've gotten to meet. And like, it's been a huge part of the reason that we were successful in all the trips we've done is um, pretty much had zero drama on any of our trips in the last 10 years. And um, so, yeah, just super lucky with who I've gotten to meet and, and paddle with. But yeah, that, that first trip, that was the Klimas and I, Matt Wilson, uh, Ryan Casey, Evan Ross and Javier Engel. And yeah, that definitely set the stage for the next uh, eight or 10 years for, for <laughs> team here. <laughs> oh, man. So fast forward. Wait, can we talk about, didn't you get really sick in Russia one time? <laughs> uh, I got yeah, I got really sick in Tajikistan one time. Tajikistan, that's right. What happened? Yeah. Man, that's a whole nother story. Uh, um, basically, <laughs> in 2013, we did a big trip where we started in the Altai in Russia in um, the beginning of August and then spent four months working through Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and then to Nepal. And we were hiking into the Muksu River in Tajikistan, which goes up over a a 14 or 15,000 foot pass and I was kind of sick going into the trip and ended up getting a pulmonary edema from the altitude which is like a pretty serious condition where your lungs fill with fluid because your body can't um, adjust to the lower pressures at high altitude and I've actually had it twice now really bad and my sister has also had it twice really bad so mm -hmm. I think we have some genetic predisposition to it, but, um, yeah, we were somewhere super remote. Uh, it was before they built the road in there and yeah, it's just a dangerous medical condition. So we hit the SOS button and then team beer ended up carrying me back over the pass to safety. And then Matt and King Charles basically ran 40 miles at 12,000 feet back to the village to get a car and then in the meantime a helicopter came out of nowhere and flew me back to the capital yeah. that's the short short story that's... and then they, they went back and uh, hiked back in and ran the shit without me that was a, that was a good story that yeah. was when i became a team, was... team beer fan when i heard that one. <laughs> I was like, okay i'm hooked <laughs> yeah that's our our big debacle when did you hatch this plan and what'd you do to get ready Oh, long story. 
The uh, plan being to run the Middle Kings. In no, the I'm switching to Middle Kings now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Middle Kings in the day. Um, dude, honestly, I probably wanted to do it before I even ran the Middle Kings when you and Tommy did the one day. Like when you guys did that, I was just starting to get good at kayaking and like run the North Fork and stuff. And when you guys were doing all those day runs on the Stikine and the Middle Kings and Upper Cherry, that just seemed like uh, the greatest expression of mastery in whitewater kayaking. So I honestly probably thought about it even before I ran the Middle Kings the first time. Mm. And then first time I did the Kings was in 2010 with, uh, with Team Beer. And we had a really epic trip. Um, none of us had done it before and it was pretty high and we showed ourselves down and it was just super hard and full on and scary and awesome. And it's, yeah, it's just mind blowing that you guys did it in a day. And then right after we did that trip, uh, how long did that first trip take you? It took us five days, like day of hiking and then five full days on the river and like bottom nine probably took us 10 hours. Um, so it was, it was really stout for us, for sure. It was definitely the hardest thing I'd run at the time. But right after we took off, like a week or two after we took off, Chris and Ben did a one day from South Lake through Garlic Falls. So tacked on the extra 10 miles. Um, and that really like sunk it in how insane that was, having done the river at that point. Um but yeah, so after I got, I went back and looked at my river journals and like, I found, like I was writing about doing the Kings in a day after that first trip. So I've been thinking about it since then, basically. Um, and then I went back and did it the next year in 2011. Um, and then again in 2015 and pretty much like, I've just always had it as like the far off goal of something I might try when I was feeling like as strong and as good as. I could ever feel. So it's been like my motivation or mantra in the back of my head, like waking up early before work to go for trail runs and stuff or uh, like doing pull-ups in the garage or doing attainments or whatever. Like I have that in the back of my head all the time, like middle Kings in the day. Um, so yeah, been working up to it for a really long time. Uh, and then like more recently, um, when I went out in 2015, I thought about maybe trying it, but I didn't have a partner and it was the flows didn't really line up and I had to go back to work. But when I came back from that trip, I sat down on Google Earth and made like a very detailed map from the put into the takeout of all the major rapids and all the landmarks and kind of the split times I thought you would have to make and kind of just kept building that map up over the last few years. Like when people would do the river and put out new videos of like cross reference, the lines I had and stuff with the, uh, with the videos. And there's a couple like unedited movies. It's pretty much the whole river start to finish. So that was actually super helpful. Like I nerded out really hard and went through and built up, uh, built up that map of the river. And then this spring when it looked like I was going to have time off to go out there and like it was probably going to run when I had time off, I basically wrote out the whole sequence of the river from start to finish and just like tried to commit it to memory, like all the everything I thought I would probably portage 
and all the lines in the major rapids and uh all of that so by the time i went out there this spring i could pretty much like sit down on my couch and like run the river from start to finish like i had a really good mental map of it so that was pretty critical for me for the preparation i gotta be honest grace i don't see you doing any of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah I definitely i took the engineer's perspective on preparing for it for sure trying to be analytical uh what about physical training like how did you just have the lungs and everything for this um i don't know i guess like definitely living in durango and paddling there for a long time um you get really good at carrying your kayak so uh just like the cumulative experience of living down there and running all those rivers year after year definitely helps like shouldering a boat into the kings doesn't feel that hard after you spend a whole summer paddling on the animus um and i think like the last five years i've just tried to be more intentional about becoming a more well-rounded endurance athlete just being more consistent with trail running and biking and body weight stuff and stretching and all that and then i pretty much don't kayak in the winter like november to march i just focus on backcountry skiing and ski mountaineering um and the last couple of years i've trained for and competed in a few ski mountaineering races and that's definitely helped my overall fitness and endurance um and then yeah just you know paddling as much as i can and paddling different types of boats, doing attainments, play boating, all that. Yeah. What was your boat of choice for the for this trip? I luckily uh, I picked up a brand new Tuna 2.0 from a friend in Durango right before this trip, which was a, a great boat for it. And then what kind of I mean what kind of gear what what gear makes the cut for this for this one day trip? What do you like, mean like what what, 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 what yeah, what what stuff did you bring in your boat? Cuz obviously weight's going to be a factor. Yeah. Um, so I brought like the standard breakdown paddle, throw bag, pin kit, a uh, small first aid kit. And then I pretty much just had the clothes I was wearing. Um, I had a light puffy coat and then some snacks. So it. what time did you start hiking? Well, let's back let's... up first. Let's back up. Yeah. So did you do oh. a run before the one day trip? How, how did, how did the actual trip this time unfold yeah um so i was pretty much like posted up in durango before going out there trying to find a crew to paddle with and um just trying to paddle every day and then it looked like i was dropping in and i got introduced to lewis norris who's a super awesome young paddler from Truckee, and he was down to go so i drove out to Truckee, and we did a five-day trip, so a day of hiking and then four days on the river. Uh, and we had like a perfect like, kind of medium, maybe lower medium flow. And he was pretty much down to just follow me. So it was a good test to see how well I knew the river because I had a, a solid partner who was uh, down to stay in his boat for some long sections and boats got some stuff. And yeah, we just had an awesome trip. It was um, super fun meeting a new motivated partner and yeah, we kind of had shorter days on the river. I think we were in camp by like one every day. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. So just, yeah, a lot of fun paddling and a lot of good camp time, relaxing. Was that his first time? 
Yeah, it was his first time. Oh, I bet he was wide-eyed. <laughs> yeah, he was so psyched. Uh, yeah, he had an awesome trip. He totally killed it. Um, what was and what was like the Rogers Crossing gauge at for the first one? The first one, it was diurnaling, like mostly between twelve and thirteen hundred, um, which is like, depending on who you ask, kind of medium, pretty much medium. Um, so we did did that run and the whole time like I was kind of like looking at all the rabbits and thinking about the sections like through the lens of what it would be like on the one day or to be there solo because it didn't seem like I was going to pull a partner for the one day um, so it was just a good trip to kind of uh, wrap my head around it and came out the other side feeling pretty fresh and we went back to Truckee and spent uh, spent a day there and kind of just kept checking the level. And I kind of made the call that if the level kept dropping and it was, or basically if it didn't go up, then I was going to go for the, the one day and then woke up in the morning and it was like, looked like it was going to be diurnaling between 11 and 1200 the next day. So it seemed like a perfect flow and decided to go for it. And Lewis was down to run my shuttle, which was super clutch because the shuttle is kind of long. Um, 600 miles of desert long. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, uh, did he, did Lewis know that you were plotting to do this one day, one day the whole time you were on the river or were you keeping that to yourself? I, I think I mentioned it like kind of near the beginning of the trip. Um, and then... Men, yeah, then told him seriously that I was probably going to do it, like, maybe our last night on the river after we took off. I can't remember exactly. Had you told anybody else that you were planning on doing this prior to this, really? Um, I bounced the idea off, uh, like, one or two people in Durango when I was paddling down there. But I kind of... It's nice not to have any pressure, like leading up to something like that. So I didn't really tell anybody. We, totally. When Tommy and I did it, we had a similar experience. We were in there with a big group, and we didn't tell anybody. Yeah. I mean, we were thinking about it, and we were jotting notes down and just keeping a log of important things to remember and whatever. But it just didn't feel right to talk about it or really just make that a point of discussion. You know, yeah, just... for sure. <clears throat> All right. So what time did you start hiking? I started hiking at the stroke of midnight. Um, so we showed up like kind of in the afternoon, got my stuff ready, um, tried to sleep a little bit, but it was hopeless because it was super hot and there were tons of mosquitoes. So I basically just sweated in my sleeping bag for a few hours. Um, yeah, and got up just before midnight, started hiking at midnight. And how long did it take you to get to the river? I got to where um, where the trail hits the river at like 4.30, around 4.30. Four and a half hours. Uh, yeah, four and a half hours to do the normal hike. And then the first couple miles, like first three miles of the river are really manky and lots of wood. And there's not a lot of good rapids. So I actually stayed on the trail all the way to Palisade Creek. Okay. Uh, and just walked to that mank section because um, I didn't want to break my boat and I knew it would be faster to stay on the trail and then got to Palisade Creek at. So wait a second. So you walked to the river, you got to the river at four thirty, and then you walked, yep. what is it? Probably another six miles. 
No, it's it's like two and a half miles, three miles to Palisade Creek. To Palisades? Yeah. It's like right above uh, Squeeze Play, like yeah. a quarter mile above Squeeze Play. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so the sun, oh, I mean, how much light did you have when you put on? I had plenty of light when I put on. It was like probably light enough to paddle at 530 or so. Okay. And then I got to Palisade Creek at like 550 and put on just after six. Okay. Then it was on. Then it was on, yeah. <laughs> How all the gorges go? It went really good. The uh, the whole upper section went really smooth, and I got to. I was below the waterfall gorge at like six fifty, like just before seven. So that whole first day took like forty minutes, forty five minutes, and then I I got out below below the waterfall gorge and pretty much walked um, the rest of the gradient into Simpson Meadow, like walked the whole Willie Kern meltdown gorge and raw dog gorge, mandatory gorge, whatever people call it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd run parts of that on our first trip, but it's uh, pretty stout and definitely slower at river level than on the trail. So I just kind of blazed past all that. And then you put back in and then what time was it when you put back in? Um, I don't remember what time I put back in, but Portage probably took a half hour or so, 40 minutes, maybe, maybe not that long. I don't remember. Um, and then, yeah, kind of just cruised through the meadow and all those bowler gardens and then got to Tehippity like just before 11, like 10 50 or so, what? which crazy. I... Yeah. Dude, I was, it was way, I was way ahead of schedule from where I thought I was going to be like, I was hoping to beat it to Hippity by two, one or two. Um, so it was pretty crazy rolling into there before 11. Yeah. I feel like we got there really early too, because we fully got there, took all our paddling gear off, dried it out, took like an hour nap yeah. you know, on the big rocks right there before you, you drop in. But I know it wasn't 11 o'clock when we got there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's <was> quick. <laughs> um, Yep. And then you're dropping in the nine. Yeah. And then like, I knew I was doing really well when I was at Tehippity, but like, I felt like we'd done a pretty fast bottom nine on our first run and it still took us like almost six hours to get to the confluence. Um, like we were doing quite a bit of scouting and like, I'm pretty conservative through the bottom nine. So we probably had like nine or 10 portages on our first trip. And I walked all of those except one of them on the day run. Um, but on the day run, like I got to the halfway point at the bottom nine in like just over an hour, like an hour, 10 minutes. And I pretty much knew at that point that um, I was going to have no problem like making it out unless I swam or did something stupid. So that was a good, a good place to get to. How would you describe the bottom nine to someone who hasn't been there? Um, it's just, um, it's a really complex, uh, stacked set of boulder gardens. Um, it's like contrary to popular belief, it's not like the whole nine miles aren't really stacked. There's like kind of a stout section at the beginning and then it's actually pretty chill for maybe two miles. And then the middle five miles are pretty ferocious, um, basically yeah just super stacked really hard white water for 
five or six miles and then like the last mile or two it kind of lets up a little bit and is a little bit easier but just really complex boulder gardens um lots of lines to remember lots of big holes um mandatory portages sprinkled in there not if you're dane jackson well yeah good point but mandatory mandatory for me (laughs) yeah there's there's three rapids in there that i would never set myself up to run for sure yeah yeah and so then you get to the bottom of that and then what time are you at the confluence i was at the confluence like just after one pretty much maybe one one ten one fifteen and i've i was freaking out when i got below like the last big rapid in the bottom nine i was uh yelling and screaming and uh, yeah it was amazing <laughs> i bet it was and so but then yeah. like garlic falls sections no gimme i mean yeah i've swam in garlic falls before i've swam so. in the rapid right below the confluence that first rapid right below the confluence with the big hole in the middle yeah oh, i got tore up in that thing one year yeah so i was definitely i was trying to like stay in the flow and uh and paddle hard between the rapids but i was very uh conservative through garlic falls walked one rapid kind of a big river wide hole um but yeah made it through <laughs> sick and then you got your car and you're like what's up was anybody waiting for you no i um i was like i thought there was n- there was no way i was going to be faster than like 17 or 18 hours so that's kind of the schedule i told lewis so i beat him to the takeout by a few hours so i got some quality, <laughs> quality napping <laughs> Man, and so did you have any low points out there? Did you have any any points where you, you know, maybe had a, a trashing or just felt like you were getting sapped energy or was it just like riding Not the wave? Really, man. It was pretty much riding the momentum. Um, I, I had like one bad line in the bottom nine. I was doing a sneak line and like kind of beat it and went through the slot backwards and flipped, but um yeah, I definitely felt fatigued by the end, but not like it was affecting my paddling much. And yeah, it was just, it was so cool to be finally doing it. I didn't really have any low points. Dead. Hats off. Preparation, man. huh? Hat Jeez. tip to you. That's the moral of that story. Preparation. A decade of planning or close yeah. to it, you know? <laughs> Whew. Man. So sick. God, dude, you're an animal. Uh, that it's is. A- 15 hours and two minutes. Yeah, that was that was the time you got from a, the trailhead. You got a Strava account or anything? <laughs> no, I don't. Tommy's been trying to turn me on to the Strava, but he hasn't talked me into it yet. Yeah, I'd love to see a, a GPS or something of that of that that run. Yeah, I I thought about trying to turn on the tracker on the inReach, but. I felt like it was more important that I conserve the battery in case I had to communicate for some reason. Well, it's hard to describe everything that you went through on that run. Do you paddle solo a lot? Uh, not really, no. I never really strive to. I do out of necessity occasionally. Would you consider this an example of necessity? Yes, 100%. <laughs> you had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> yeah. choice. Yeah. I mean, I, I never really considered or planned on doing it solo until this spring when I realized it seemed like it was all going to come together and I was maybe not going to have a partner for it. 
Um, but I'd put so much work in and wanted it so bad that it seemed like an acceptable risk. And I felt like I was paddling well enough and knew the river well enough to, to do it. Dude, I'm beyond impressed. That is so fast. You know, one of the things I remember from our trip is every spot that I forgot, because obviously you can't get out and scout when you're trying to, to make time is Tommy remembered and every spot that he forgot, I remembered. And to yeah. have all that burden on your own shoulders. I mean, <laughs> dude, I've, there's a lot of horizon lines out there. I mean, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a, that's, that's an yeah. accomplishment just to remember all that. For sure. It definitely, when I did it, it felt very rehearsed and choreographed and, um, I definitely remembered everything the whole way. So that was really satisfying. FKT middle Kings right there. Stamp it. <laughs> thanks for sharing that story. Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me share it. It's fun to, fun to share that with the community for sure. I know that, uh, we were all buzzing about this as soon as the text came through Tommy, you know, Tommy called me as soon as you got sent his text to him and man, 15 yeah. hours, two minutes, mark it down. Yeah. Um, I got to go paddling with Tommy last weekend and, do some reminiscing about your guys's trip and that was pretty cool sweet yeah well we took naps and stuff like that it was a little different but <laughs> 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 holy moly boys you got any what's what's up for you now ben what's uh you're starting a new job paddling season's over um no got a good summer uh slicey paddling on the colorado ahead of me Sick and have a family Grand Canyon trip in August. Nice. And then when's the one-day uh, Stikine run? Is that next uh, year? Are you try to squeeze it in this fall? I've uh, been there, done that, man. That's old news. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> no, uh, I, I don't know. I got a pretty good work schedule, so I can probably do short trips to BC in the fall, and I would love to go back. How old are you, Ben? I'm 32. Sick. Right in your prime, knocking it down. If you'd have been 197, we may have had to cut your interview short. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think we would have had to reevaluate our own <laughs> choices yeah, at that uh, point. For, first time I did the one day Stakeem was with a 197. So you can talk shit about that. <laughs> you can edit that out later. <laughs> well, man, thanks so much for coming on the show, boys. Do you have anything else you'd like to dig into with Ben while we got him here? I don't know, man. I feel like we're, we have this like rare opportunity. Like, I don't know. Like what else do you want to tell us, dude? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, we got ben talking here. It's like, I feel like people, I feel like, like the people listening to this, there's like some subset who just like know the legend of team beer and the legend of Ben Luck. And there's some people who do not know and need to know. <laughs> like, I don't uh, know how to bridge that divide. Peel, peel it out, there. Liz. Peel it out. Oh man, I don't know. I don't even know what to ask. It's just there's just this is too. There's no no good place to start. I feel like we've covered some good ground though. Where's Matt yeah. Wilson at now? Matt Wilson is in Telluride. He's still in Telluride. His, uh, yep. Okay. His lovely wife and his uh, two-year-old son, three-year-old son, mm -hmm. and he's got a welding business there, metalworking business. Well, Team Beer, man. They're probably my favorites. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, Gangsters? Yeah. The Gangsters, they got a, 
they're still a little wet behind the ears, you know. <laughs> give, give them six or eight years, and we'll see where they're at, you know. But right. All right. Well, we're gonna jump into the rest of the show, Ben. If there's anything else you'd like to add, please jump in. Um. No, I think I'm good, man. But like thanks your TikTok account, me. anything like that? <laughs> ladies and gentlemen ben luck fastest known time middle kings 15 hours two minutes yeah, that's amazing that is truly amazing yeah seriously dude thanks for coming on man we're honored yeah thanks for having me all right, right see you see you thank you did you did you see the look of love on lewis's face while that was going on ah God, I just like those guys are just everything that's right about kayaking, man. Deep, deep love. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true, man. It's true. I've never seen you look that enamored with something or someone. Wait, I not, dude, no one. Team beer, team beer. Those boys are. I'm not disagreeing. Not... I just was. It's just a, a remarkable turnaround for you, Lewis. I'm seeing a side you've never seen before. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, it's. it's... It changed my usual look of disgust when we're talking about <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of like inflatable about on here. rolling assistant devices or whatever, the, <laughs> whatever that stupid thing is called. <laughs> Paddle floats. <laughs> what was the level when you ran Metal Kings, Lewis? I think we started hiking at like twelve, but I think it was like under eight when we took off. Yeah, it was an interesting year this year. It like. I mean, it ran for two weeks. The Middle Kings did, you know. Do they had like a cold snap that brought it in, and then it like steadily warmed up and just kind of stayed in the window for a long time. I mean, I think that's kind of the 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 secret about California is like you know, like low snowpack years can often be. I mean, it's a shitty year if you live there, but if you want to take a trip to California, a low snowpack year can be can be a time to get some stuff done for sure. Because like a lot of those runs will hang out at. Rel, rel, runnable levels a lot longer just because it's like cooler when it's going through the end of the snowpack and it doesn't just go from too high to too low and you know a day or two no super that's super wise i'd agree with that one all right boys let's transition over here to other news that's come across our desk we'll pull up our trello board here <clears throat> um, Sam writes in. He says, "You all better not be waiting until Christmas to talk about this." And this is the launch of the Apex Watercraft um, brand. Weld is ready for this one. Well, I don't know about ready, but first of all, they sent an email. EJ or the people at Apex sent an email out about two weeks ago announcing the Kickstarter with a link, and the link was broken. Right. They forgot to put a, a colon or whatever in. And usually when that happens, you, you get a follow up email like five minutes later because like a thousand people write in and be like, hey, your your email's broken. Because we we've done that. Of course, you send an email out to all your customers and you realize it's broken. So that's a B. As of we started recording for the Kickstarter, which launched today. He has the uh, you know, the the top the top tier level for Kickstarter is the gold. This is the gold level. It's seven, $7,999 for gold. If that's too much for you, you can go down a level to the silver, which is $8,250. And if that's too much of a commitment, you can go one less level to bronze, which is a 
relatively cheap, eight thousand nine hundred ninety-nine dollars. And well, well, your copy editor is deeply offended by these. <laughs> no, I'm not, it's not that. You know what this is? This this reeks of sausage fest. This is a bunch of dudes. That's what this is. <laughs> if you had a single woman in that operation, she would have caught this this gaff and fixed it. Okay, let's get let's get let's get down to the nuts and bolts of this because. Grace, you made an excellent point about this on the phone earlier today. Well, well let me let, let me back up. Let me just All right. Can I just throw my take on the whole thing? Absolutely. I just want to throw it out there. First of all, I thought you were kidding last show when you said $8,000 boat. I really thought right. it was going to be like 5 grand. You know, I knew it was going to be really expensive, more expensive than any other boat. I don't know how I arrived at that number in I don't know what the retail is going to be, but I I must have heard it from somewhere. I mean, cuz you were right. That's what it was. That's what the cost is. You know, yeah. so anyway, I was first of all that kind of outside of messing up the tiers of the support and whatever, the boat looks cool. I mean, it's a super out of the box design if you're going to do something like this. But this is my problem with it. If you watch the video on the Kickstarter, it talks about all the people making your boat and everything that's happened up to this launch has been about who do you want making your boat. The whole like premise is based on these people, but they just never ever tell anyone or ever describe what the person is going to really get who's spending $8,000. And I think we kind of talked about, it, it references all through their Kickstarter campaign that people are paying $10,000 for road bikes. But the thing about some guy who's got enough money to spend $10,000 on a road bike, he's looking at the amount of wattage he can put out for an hour and if he's going to spend X number of hours training for this race and it can improve his time by two minutes over the course of 50 miles, the technology, and he's got the money, he's like, hey, I'll spend that money. But through this whole launch, I haven't figured out how this boat's going to help me catch more fish, um, win right. a tournament, um, right. catch a bigger fish. Like, I don't know what the value because is. To the the, the sport we're talking about here isn't kayaking, it's fishing. Yeah, right? it's fishing. I it's mean, a... you spend a lot of money on a bike, and you're going biking. You get a value for your money, you, you, you know. But you're but not they... going out kayaking in this craft. You're going out fishing, and it, there's. I don't know. Maybe that's, that's, a, bad, that's a broken analogy. Maybe it's us just misunderstanding the culture of fishing, though. I mean, it's like I don't know. Like we drive down to like Drano Lake for the you know the little white takeout when the fish are running in the spring down there, and it's like you know everybody's got a sixty thousand dollar pickup truck and. Uh, you know, like a super fancy fishing boat. And it's like, you know, like maybe that's the market, you know, it's people who have cash to burn and are, you know, happy to spend it on their hobby. And if you're thinking about it, if you're in comparison in your head is, you know, a $2,000 plastic boat. Yeah. You're probably, you know, not, not the buyer, but if the comparison in your head is like a hundred thousand dollar bass boat like maybe you're like yeah 10 g's that's like a bargain see I you know disagree. it's I, like i think it's i mean i don't know i mean i'm just playing devil's advocate here but i mean i guess to me it's i'm also like i wish them well and it's just this doesn't really interest me very much to be honest yeah <laughs> I, i'm just saying the pitch the the pitch that was that i looked at on the kickstarter and whatever it never told me w what i would get out of this i wouldn't be able to climb a hill faster or I wouldn't be able to, like you're saying, tow a bigger boat with my badass truck. Or, you know, I wouldn't be able to, 
use my cool depth finder to see more detail of the bottom structure so I could find but more it's fish. Like if you there's like, no, there's, like, there's if nothing, like, there's no value to catch more fish. There's nothing but pitched. if you like, if you buy a Gucci handbag, it's not going to help you carry more Tic Tacs or whatever. It's just like, you know, well, it's, it's, a, a, it's a long brand. road. So it's a long road to building a luxury, luxury brand though. You just don't do that right out of the gate. But I mean, maybe the way you build a luxury brand is by, you know, talking about the people involved and like creating some like prestige around it and, you know, it's this like handcrafted bougie. Maybe if Eric changed his last name to Apex, that that may help. That'd be a good name. Eric Apex. Kind of like it. Apex Watercraft. It's got a ring to it. <laughs> I'm sorry. Listen, I like EJ. I, I'm not. I don't. I'm not sitting. I like EJ too. EJ. I, I. 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 And I'd love. And I'm going to get him on the show to talk about this in person, so he can he can respond to these. And I'm sure he he would love he would love to. But anyway. If you're listening, proofread the, the, the stuff you put out to your customers. <laughs> Listen, I mean, well, seriously. I did, some, I did some proofreading for you the other day, bud, and I'm not sure you should be casting stones from your... Uh... These were, this wasn't... This wasn't <laughs> right. I mean, you're talking about you know editorial stuff. This is just plain typos. I mean, he has, you cannot you cannot bid on something when the order of the, the rewards are, are reversed. <laughs> yeah, that's tricky. That's going to be a tricky recovery. <laughs> And maybe you're right, Lewis. Maybe it is the luxury brand appeal that they're going for. But man, that's a. I mean, I think the big thing is that it's easier to carry, which is a thing, right? I mean, no one likes to haul a, a, a you know, presumably what, like a hundred pound plastic fishing kayak around, right, with a captain's chair on it or whatever these things have. So uh, if this is a sick eight thousand dollar eight thousand dollar fishing boat with all these molded in seats it's got these magnets where you can like you know just put like your pliers up against the hole and they'll stay there and whatever eight thousand dollars what do you think apex could design a whitewater boat for if it's four, eight, grand. four grand man I, that, that'd be sustainable i think that, i mean if you're just talking like just abstract concept yeah how long would a really good if you could have your favorite boat design built in composites and it costs four grand, how long would it have to last you for you to be willing to pony up that cash? I wouldn't I wouldn't want one. I'd just be a nervous wreck paddling that thing around, you know, like I would hit a rock and blow the seam out or something. I think it's possible to build boats to build composite boats for whitewater that are comparable to plastic boats, to be honest. I mean, outside of a huge piton and like crashes, I agree. I think they can take a serious beating. You build a slicey boat there. and composite, and you do a stern squirt and hit a hit a rock, swiping that boat around. You're going to crack the composite material, guys. I, but, I, I mean, if you build them heavier, I mean, it's like if you're talking about building, I mean, yeah, for sure, small yeah. boat. But if you build you, a one piece boat with no, you build a seventy pound composite boat. I'm not sure like what you a, gain by this. No, not seventy, but I mean, say you say you could have like a OG that weighs thirty or thirty-five pounds. It's gonna break. It's totally stiff. It's gonna break. A thirty-five pound composite boat in a little white is gonna break on your first trip down. Come on, I'm with you, Lewis. I think it's I'm possible. On, I I would love. I'm not interested in this fishing boat. I don't understand. Look, I mean, I I, it's been a I while. I make I make composite boats for a living. I, I recognize it's been a while. But a you didn't have a guy there. who was building jet. You know, Lockheed Martin jets on your team. Carbon fiber like, and new, Kevlar's carbon new, fiber and Kevlar just breaks, huh? There's like there's new resins out there, and there's new like if you're building the boat in one piece, you don't have to deal with the seams. And like, I mean, like those. How would you build a boat like, in one piece? How? 
with a three-piece mold and a bladder. Can we admit that the lightness and stiffness of a composite boat is a serious improvement on performance over a rolled motor plastic boat? No World of difference. World yeah. of no difference. Question. And yeah, no I, I don't know, 4,000. First of all, this would e completely equalize whitewater paddling for people who weigh 125 pounds. Yes, I'm saying. I, I think they should think, just scrap the whole fishing thing and just go into whitewater. I think they would. I think we should get Bondo on to talk about his his theories on the the feasibility of building composite whitewater boats it's no market i mean the market does not exist so that's this the is problem. A, that's a radical conversation exist, because there's no market yes if it did exist there'd be, be being it'd be there'd be out there right now but it doesn't but i mean would you i mean i would think about buying it i don't know i mean i would not buy a four thousand dollars i just would not do it Man, I just think about how sweet it would feel like skipping out of wishbone in a 35 pound boat with ah, zero to it. Oh God. man, that would feel so good. And then, yeah. and then you bring it home and you get your grinder out and you patch it. That part I've I'm been there. Like when I started boating, that's what we had to do. You break your, you'd run the upper yacht, you'd crack your boat open. Oh, I know. Get it back but home. There's you newer technologies, the man. There's newer yeah. technologies now. The technology has changed. Boomer, boat. talking about a 35 pound boat. Oh man. Anyway. Hopefully well, are you they... boomer or are you Gen X? <laughs> What's that? So are you boomer or are you Gen X? Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I was born in nineteen forty two. Um let's get into a little little listener mail here. <laughs> Before we get into our rants and raves. Lewis, you got a rant or a rave? Yeah, I think I got a rave. Okay. Dude, uh, I have a rave. I've been thinking about this all week. I have a rave, for sure. Uh, but let's 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 we'll, let's just set that aside for a moment. John Sue loves two thousand dollar kayaks. He says, See, "As maybe we, I'm completely wrong." As one of many kayakers who paddle in the D.C. metro area, I can tell you that as a whole, kayakers are cheap. Cheap when it comes to what we would pay for a kayak. I know many, many, many kayakers who would drive all day, 500 miles and back, just to save 50 bucks. And I, I've got to interject here that if you're, if that's your take in the D.C. area, that is, Whitewater really is fucked. Because if you can find a market with more people who actually have money to spend as kayakers than the people around D.C., <laughs> I'd be hard-pressed to identify it. Well, well hang on, John. Well, he's right. And I, 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 he's right, though. I agree with him 100% what he's saying here. <laughs> We love to brag to others what a great deal we got on a boat. Then we would drop $100 plus buying alcohol with no hesitation. That's Just right. Just combine a kayak with beer and you would have a winning formula. $2,000 for a kayak and a case of beer. That's right. He couldn't be more right. We, I was having this exact conversation with, with uh, Max and I are a couple days ago. Um, and this, the context of the conversation was in the context of pro deals, right? What's happening? Because we're in the pro deal death spiral right now, pretty much the entire outdoor industry, which means that pro deals have become, which was pro deals were once like a, a marketing chant, like a, a marketing device for outdoor companies 20 years ago to help get their gear promoted in stores. And it was sort of a limited thing to literally everybody in the industry has anybody who has any relationship to, to an outdoor sport gets a pro deal. Uh, and it's now a, a legitimate, serious, major sales channel for every single outdoor company that's that's replacing a dwindling retailer 
supply ch supply channel. And so what happens is you get customers who go out and they, the market value in their mind for whatever, a, a tent is going to be the pro deal price at a tent. That's the market value, right? And that's they will not pay a penny more for this thing. And then they'll go out and buy a $6 beer or whatever that night. It's just what people perceive the market value to be something. And the result of all this, by the way, is the whole thing about the price increases is because manufacturers are like, we have to make a, a base amount of, you know, a certain percentage or gross profit on our products. And uh, and this, they just make the prices more expensive to make up for a pro deal, which is like half their business for some of these people, you know. I, I know the, the SUP guy is going to be on my case about this. Who is that dude? <laughs> I'll dig up his email later. He's a banker. Uh, and uh... I think what Weld's saying here is that if you don't have a pro deal, you're pretty much nobody and that you should just ask any place you want to buy something from for a pro deal. Yeah. I, I mean, <laughs> well, to get back to what John's saying is that he, he, the point being is that we just need to change people's perspective about what a boat costs. That's all. Do we need? Do we really want to talk about this anymore? I feel like we've we trampled the subject to death. Yeah. The, the ills of the industry. Rudy writes in. He says, "Hey, I just wanted to pass along a good new Whitewater article on Outside Online. Seems like a good discussion on the Hammer Factor. Love the podcast. Asheville resident, and mm -hmm. he links to an article. I'll put this in the show notes um, from Outside Online that talks about flush drowning." And the effect of cold water on uh, a this is a classic a classic example of misinterpreting data. The reality of this, it, to, to to summarize, the article points out that that most flush drownings are occurring in cold water, like out west. But the real root problem, the real situation here, is that East Coast boaters are better kayakers than West Coast <laughs> boaters, and in particular, Colorado <laughs> boaters. Because, Thank you. <laughs> I mean, that is, I mean, really, that's what we're talking about when we get down to it. I mean, again, I haven't read this either, but I mean, you got to think that the real misinterpretation of the data is that flush drowning happens when the water's high and the water's high when it's cold out. Right. Yeah. I, yeah there's, there's, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't read that. I didn't read this study or anything, but there's obviously many different ways to interpret that, those numbers. You know, I just want to tell Rudy, local Asheville resident, don't ever cite outside magazine <laughs> good point moving on i kind of like this one uh, mark comes at us he says hey gents the merced whitewater apostles i love that group and there should be a sticker for that it's a Mer group the merced whitewater whitewater apostles are a group of old folks out there having fun while on a trip a few months ago we came up with a new way to deal with swimming booty beers um outside of booby outside of booty booty beers he references um, we came up with a novel idea every time you swim you get a small swimmer icon think olympic swimmer icon on your boat we made up a stencil so you can fill it in with either brown you really blew it or silver or gold the color is determined by your crew as they wear off so be it time heals all wounds i'll see if i can figure out how to send a photo so i love this idea I love no, no. He's I, rethinking something that he's fixing that does not need to be fixed. No, I mean you can do booty bears. I'm totally fine with it, but I do like the idea of like you ever watch like Ohio State football players' helmets where they have all the stickers where it's like they got X number of tackles or touchdowns or something like that. I do think it would be cool to have some kind of badge of honor 
for it would also serve a really valuable purpose in like if you see somebody in the parking lot <laughs> like swim icon spray painted all over the boat like... brilliant <laughs> <Steer> clear <laughs> brilliant that's I, I think there's something there i think you got something mark i would run with that um kirk <laughs> oh kirk Hi there. Could you guys direct me to the episode where you discuss paddle length and offset? I believe there are a few. Thanks, Kirk. A few. All right. Let's, okay. let's, just, let's just skip that one. Kirk, episode one through 68-ish. So scan any of those. Um, here's a good one. Um, and I, Okay. I followed up on this one. Hey, Hammer Factor, just wanted to bring your attention to this amazing accomplishment that I was recently made aware of. Um, Alexander Doba, kayak from Portugal to Florida at 67. Assuming this is not fake news and it's as epic as it sounds. Um, personally, I hadn't heard it was happening. Any of you would be an epic guest for the show. It seems like he's a, has a pretty incredible expedition resume, uh, Travis Patterson. So reached out to Mr. Doba and he doesn't speak English. So we would, and have... he has COVID cause he's stuck in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> um, y'all the raft maniacs. Hello. We're getting ready to release a movie about rafts running waterfalls and creeks, typically only ran by kayaks, really dig the hammer factor and would be great if we could open a conversation about possibly getting a spot with the hammer factor. Here's a link to the teaser. Uh, he uses, he's using the same PR company as EJ. Because <laughs> <laughs> the link is broken. <laughs> Y'all guys, I broke in and found a trailer, and it looks pretty good. Reach out to is me, it, and we'll figure something out. Can I can I tell you what I'm what I'm what I'm visualizing is dudes running a raft, just getting power injected, <laughs> just like sprung from the boat. <laughs> Dude, no. Uh, Dude, I, I mean, <laughs> there is no question. There is no question that you 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 have to look in awe when you see what these guys are running in rafts and how fast they're doing it. But it's not because of the raft; it's in spite of the raft <laughs> that this is that this is interesting. All I can say is, is, thank God we had Ben Luck on earlier because since then we've just gone down the raft <laughs> of kayak fishing and rafting. Like, thank God Benny is here to save this podcast from itself. Dude, I love the y'all Raph Maniacs, and they will be a big part of this show moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just telling you. Man, <laughs> okay, anyway, I'll tell you. All right, we... I, know, I know I'm going to get grief from the y'all river crew or whatever, but <laughs> I, I, I'm kidding, and you can come on and defend yourself, so just relax. <laughs> Oh, they'll be on. Something that's funny about that is we went and saw the National Paddling Film Festival Outdoor Roadshow this past weekend. I took the kids up to the Nolichucky, and we camped out, and they had an inflatable screen and watched the movies. And they had, like, these great whitewater films from Brent Orton and whatever, and then, like, the kids were kind of watching it and fidgety and whatnot. And then they got into this clip from the... Uh, the narnivores have you guys ever heard of the narnivores i think they're probably i think they're probably i think they're probably going to go head to head with the yaw crew at some point this is i'm setting this up for a future show but anyway 
The kids loved it, dude. We could do like a rafting crew. It was what we did with the kayak crew. Exactly, dude. The Narnivores. When the Narnivore stuff came on, the kids were jumping out of their seats. Oh my god! And like rafts crashing and people swimming and like blood and whatever and. I don't know, man. I was looking at that. I was like, ah, that's going to blow the hammer factor up. We got to get these guys on there. Don't underestimate the y'all boys. Kelsey wants Green Ray stats. Um, back in 2008 for episode 49, you had Kenny Unser on to talk about if it can be predicted who will be the first to break the four-minute mark for the Green Race and when the four-minute mark will be broken. I am in a stats class right now and have to do a final project and thought it would be cool to repeat some of the data analysis Kenny did, but factor in data from the last two years as well. Was wondering if you all could provide his email address because he talks a lot about data he collected, and I would love to ask him if he'd be willing to share his raw data sheets with me. Oh, boy. So, Kelsey, I know you're trying to get a good grade in your class. <laughs> you're playing with fire, though, my friend. Kenny Unser is like Beetlejuice. You say his name like three times, and he's there, and he's not leaving. He's in your house. <laughs> he's wearing pajamas. You better like Britney Spears because you played a lot of that, and I'm not kidding. In two words, Costco and Cheetos. There's going to be a lot, of, a lot of that going down. Kelsey, you... <sighs> You get Kenny involved. You just better sit down for a long ride. That's all I'm saying. <clears throat> I'll pass you over Kenny's contact. You can get in Good touch luck. with him. This God is the speed. year, right? This is the year that he predicted. It, yeah, it was last year. Statistically, it it's proven. It's gonna. Well, last no, fall. it could have happened last year, but it's statistical certainty that it will happen by this year. All right. So, I don't know. Time will tell. All right, boys, we're at an hour and a half here for our show. We've got two done in as many weeks. This was actually a, we brought something of value to our audience. Been luck. So we did good there. But now let's shut us down with everybody's favorite part of the show, our rants and raves, where our hosts go off a little bit of rant or a little bit of a rave about something in their world. Lewis, would you like to start us off? Yeah, I'm going to rave about getting out of the orge. Um, I feel like this is the time of year when I really would like to be in British Columbia, but that is not available to us because the Canadians have licked COVID-19 and we live in Trump country down here and it is what it is. Um, so I've been getting out in Washington a little bit more than usual and uh, went up and did uh, did Bridge Creek into the Stahacken that goes into Lake Chelan. It's like a little three day mesh up in the North Cascades with uh, my brother-in-law Andrew a couple weeks ago. It was awesome. Just like super cool. Like felt like a little slice of BC up there. And then uh, this last weekend did uh, Clear Fork Cowlitz for like the first time in I don't know probably like five years that's a good one well dude so it was you know forever it was like one of the considered like one of the gems of the Pacific Northwest and it's just had horrible wood for the last like 15 years you know like 10 portages just all day geod of log portaging and we went back and it's down to like three portages now um like really really like clean as a whistle honestly and it was just like super good like i'm super stoked that, that run is is back in action and uh yeah just gonna try to try to 
do some more Washington appreciation this summer, I think. There you go. Keep it local. Mr. Weld? You know, I feel like America has gotten beaten up for the past couple months. We're losing our standing in the world, but I want to rave about a certain aspect of the American psyche that's been overlooked recently. It's embodied by this guy who lives in our neighborhood named Ryan Bond. I love Ryan Bond. <laughs> and if there's a word for that, 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 would, that would encapsulate this, it would translate something like, if, I'm going, if, if my kids want to play with foamy kayaks, I'm going to rent not one, but two excavators and dig up my suburban lawn in my na- suburban neighborhood from, from house to road, <laughs> driveway to the side to the border line to build a four to one ASCII scale whitewater course. <laughs> this thing. Ryan told me he's building a whitewater course, and I was expecting like a little like plastic pool, like a wading pool, is sort of like a hose. <laughs> and I rode, I rode over to the house to take a look at it. I was dumbfounded. <laughs> I stopped at my tracks. I immediately got back in the car, and I was like, "Kara, you got to come look at this. I'm gonna send you a picture. I'm, I'm putting it in the in the chat right now, and and uh, you got you can put this up on. I can put this in the on show the, notes. On the, yeah, on the show notes. Wait till you see this. Oh. Look at this thing. Oh my god. <laughs> can, you, can you imagine being his neighbor? <laughs> I mean, you'd be like That is so awesome. Did he pull a permit for that thing? No. <laughs> no. He has a he has a 10,000 gallon pump that's pumping water up to the top of this thing right now. Right. And we went over, we're sort of moving rocks around. I keep, I go over to help every chance I get, cause I'm so in love with this project. This is so amazing. And, uh, and it's like a whole math puzzle figuring out the water flows. Cause it ends up pooling in the bottom of this thing. And now we have to like to build the bottom holding pond bigger, which is going to flood the bottom waterfall. And honestly, this thing is so big. When you flood this waterfall, I'm imagining AW is going to have to get involved in some kind of litigation or something, some kind of review process to make sure that we're not damming up a a river. And at some point, I want to have this thing like surreptitiously listed on the AW River Board where you can check flows on it and stuff like that and have sections. Do you guys see the picture? Uh Dude, it's incredible. I mean, it's like... It's incredible. He had two excavators. My man Ryan had two excavators <laughs> moving boulders around. <laughs> I mean, some of these boulders have got to weigh close to 1,000 pounds, dude. Yes. That's right. Uh, <laughs> thanks for sharing that one. That's a good one. That's yeah, a really gosh. good rave. Way to go, Ryan, man. There's something that, that's so Valley Mill about this that I can't put my finger on. Well, I know no. the source of this is, is Markov somehow. <laughs> You know, just the harebrained, throw caution to the wind nature of this project. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> we should have saved that one for and, the show. And I want to point out again, when you look at these pictures, you understand this is not like on a, on a rural farm somewhere. This is in a neighborhood, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he could have put it in the backyard, but he has a full-size half pipe in the backyard. Another thing I love. <laughs> Ah, so brilliant. Yeah. 
Okay, I got a I got a rave, and it has to do with uh, COVID nineteen and twenty twenty and everything. Everybody is human powered shuttling. You would not even believe the cool ways. Like the one wheel has definitely stepped up now as a proven proven shuttle device. Bicycles, obviously proven. They're Systems. People are trading gear at people's houses. And so you, uh, keeping gear at somebody else's house so you can pick up after the ride. E-bikes. The e-bikes, I got to tell you, they're finding their place as a uh, human-powered shuttle vehicle. But it's just been super interesting to be like, I don't know, around here there were probably five or six of us, Adam Herzog, myself, a few other people. Now there's like hundreds of people doing human-powered shuttles. And... It's just sick to see all the combinations and everything they're coming up with. Hmm. That's my rave, human powered shuttles. Well, I think that wraps us up, boys. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we shut this bad boy down? Nope. As always, thanks for listening. And uh, yeah, you got to check out this thing on the show notes. This is the most amazing foamy river I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers, boys.